0: Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Today, I'm joined by Rai Barkat. Rai served in the Marine Corps in Iraq, Bosnia, and the Horn of Africa. He's the founder and CEO of With Honor, a foundation that helps elect veterans from both parties. We discuss the growing polarization in American life, how veterans can be part of the solution and Rai's extensive record of service. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Rai, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Great to be on. Thanks, Naveen. Well, let's just jump right into it. You know, you have a longstanding track record of community leadership, public service, both on the nonprofit side and notably on the military side. Before we get too deep, what drives you? You know, Is there one person who inspired you to that level of service?
1: Yeah, there are really two. I've been thinking about both of them a lot over the last three months. Anybody that's born to the world with two loving parents has an advantage from day one. And my mother and father were just giants in my life. My father unfortunately passed away uh, a few months ago, which has really caused me a moment to reflect on, on both him and his, my mother's life. And just you know, in a nutshell, they're very different in their leadership, but they're similar in their values. My father served in the Marine Corps and then became a sociologist. And when I was writing his eulogy, I reflected on five life lessons from his life for others. He would have liked that. He always wanted folks to laugh and learn something when they engaged in material. One of his life lessons that I try and carry with me throughout life is to assert yourself in the service of others. And anybody that met my father would know that he was not shy to assert himself. They would not always know that it was in the service of others, but that really was the intent for my dad. My mother's personality, very different. She's both an anthropologist, a nurse, And she actually taught nurses for over 40 years. And she instilled in me a really deep appreciation for putting yourself into different cultures and listening. And listening is a skill. And doing that in a right way that is respectful for others, where you can both learn and make each other better, is really a beautiful thing. So those are the two great forces in my life. And I carry them with me and think about them every day.
0: Assert yourself in the service of others. Certainly words to live by. And you've certainly proven that. Condolences for your father's recent passing, of course. Thank you. And I know he was instrumental in your work in Africa, in your nonprofit, Carolina for Kabira. But I want to bring that for the end because it's such an inspirational story and talk about what you're doing right now, which is truly in the service of others and our democracy. Can you talk a little bit about With Honor? I'm not sure all our listeners are familiar.
1: Absolutely. So With Honor is a cross partisan organization. We're about five years old. I co-founded it with two other veterans, and we're taking on what I believe is among the most pressing problems for our country and with a lot of global implications, and that's the polarization and dysfunction of our Congress. It's really the polarization of our culture. Congress is a reflection of our culture, and, and our leaders are a reflection of ourselves. We're addressing this by getting right to it, which is to help elect and support principled veterans who pledge to work across party lines, serve in a bipartisan caucus, the four-country caucus that with Honor Action works alongside. There are 26 members in it. They're from all around the United States. We're 50-50 across party lines with the support that we provide to veterans that want to answer a call to serve again. A lot of folks will often ask, well, why veterans? What's the connection there? And you know, when you served in the military, you have risen your hand and said that you will give up to, if called, even including your life in the service of something that is larger than yourself. And that common bond is really important and it enables a trust and a culture to start to build with this group. So that's with honor. I lead it full time and we are thrilled to be doing a lot of work both in Congress with policies but then also training and recruiting good principled Americans to run for office.
0: Well. As we get into that, I just wanted to mention something in doing my research on you that someone said about you and With Honor, which was a well-known former Marine said, Rye Barkat is doing more to save American democracy than anyone he knows. So that's a pretty strong statement from this individual whose name I won't mention, but thank you for doing what you're doing. I want to dive deep.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that, Naveen. And uh, by the way, not a surprise that he's a Marine. We like to pump each other up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good system. Tell us who are some of your big backers. I think that our audience would be interested in that. If you can share.
1: Sure, sure. So, so with Honor as a grassroots organization, we have raised and deployed a little over $40 million over a four-year period of time. It's unfortunate that there's so much, frankly, money that is in politics. But the reality is that that's often what it takes to win elections. And many of the veterans that we support have absolutely zero ties to Affluent networks and sort of the political class when they're seeking to serve again. So we we really work to help lower those barriers to, to entry by supporting these vets often in material ways, both in their primaries and at times in the general elections. And our supporters range, you know, just great Americans across the board. They're Republicans, they're Democrats, they're independents. Many of them often feel like the common thread is that they don't have a home. You know, they feel like. Our politics doesn't speak for who they are. And that is, in fact, the largest growing political party in the United States are those that are unaffiliated. So that's really who is kind of the core of our supporters.
0: And I know prior to starting with Honor, you did a lot of work trying to understand the nature of the polarization that is occurring in our country. Could you talk a little bit more about where that polarization is coming from and how bringing veterans together as members of Congress is going to help that? And also, you know, what can any of our audience members do to help solve this dynamic?
1: Where does our polarization come from is such a massive kind of question that we're all wrestling with, because at times it does feel like the divides are just so severe. We are increasingly in our own bubbles, though, where we do not have trusted relationships with people that think differently from us politically. And that's a factor of geography and the rural-urban divides. It's also a factor of our social media and how we consume information. The way that we address the problem is we take that common thread of having served in uniform your country, and we use that as the common ground to start establishing relationships. You have to have a relationship before you can get deals done for the good of the country across party lines. You just have to. You have to have some trust. You know, you're know, you not going to be able to work with somebody if you shoot at them on Twitter before you've ever even been in a room and shaken their hand. In Congress today, when new members of Congress come to an orientation, in the first 100 days that they're in Congress, Typically, there's less than a week, less than 6 out of those 100 days that they're actually together across party lines. So they're divided structurally from the very beginning. And what we do is we bring the group of bipartisan vets together every 2 weeks. They take a pledge to serve with integrity, civility, and courage. They have to reaffirm the pledge every 2 years. If they want to be part of the group, they have to show up to 80% of the meetings. They have to actually conduct themselves with civility. <laughs> you know? Yes, civility. It does matter. It is still possible today, but it is going against the trend and it's going against many of the incentives in our politics that, frankly, a lot of Americans are driving when they push the button and give a little bit of money because they feel a triggered action to whatever the latest culture war
0: is. Fascinating. Well, the big question, I guess, is is it working? Is bringing veterans together actually creating accomplishments on the legislative side over the last few years? It
1: is working, and there's a lot of work to be done. Broadly speaking, when you just look at what happened over the last three years, there's no measure that we haven't become more polarized in. So the big picture is this problem's getting worse. Now we're building a nugget. We're building a seed. You know, my mother, the anthropologist, gave me the middle name Mead after the famous anthropologist Margaret Mead, whose quote is now emblazoned on businesses as well as nonprofits. And the quote is, never doubt the power of a small group of committed individuals to change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. And so what we are doing is building a nucleus. Many of the vets are younger vets. They're going to be in our public life for a long period of time. And the trust that they develop now is really important. And we draw a lot of inspiration from the greatest generation. In Congress, veterans used to be 70% of Congress. Now they're a little under 20%. Many of those veterans acted statistically in a more bipartisan way. They were able to find common ground. And that's what we're doing. And so the productivity that's resulted from that is over 40 laws passed into action In the last three years. 40 laws, to give a sense, is significant in an environment where it's difficult to get one law passed. Your member of Congress is in a good position if they've gotten at least one law passed in the last two years. But this group has gotten over 40 and they matter. They're in areas of really important places for our country. National security, the group has led on laws related to um, making America more competitive in AI and cyber, and frankly, adjusting our government and getting it ready in these fast moving areas. National service is a big priority of the organization. And we were thrilled that the first major expansion of AmeriCorps, which is voluntary national service in the United States, in over two decades, happened in part as a result of this group last year. That's an area, by the way, where you have widespread bipartisan support. You take polls of Republicans, Democrats, independents across the country. Do we need more service for particularly for young Americans? It's like 90% yes. You don't get that on almost any other issue. So that's what we're doing as an organization. We look for the place where there's common ground. We look for the places that really matter. And then we focus and we get stuff done in those areas. And this is a long road to hoe. We're only one part of this. I believe there are no silver bullets. This is an issue that's an all hands on deck issue. But these efforts are working and we need more of them and we need more focused resources and talented people giving their
0: best hours to it. Can you talk a bit more about why you believe voluntary national service is going to be so important going forward?
1: I think in general, you need a culture in a country that believes in something and believes in something that's larger than themselves. America is an incredible nation. You should give back to it in a direct way. <laughs> and that can be in military service, but it can also be in other forms of service. There's a really interesting statistic that if you vote within the first six years that you're eligible to vote, so when you're, called 18 to 24, If you vote within that period of time, you're more likely by an order of magnitude to vote throughout your entire life. You're more likely to stay engaged. And that's what service does for you. And any veteran can speak to this. You have worn the cloth of your country, and therefore you carry that with you throughout your life. It changes our values. It changes our culture. Again, it's not a silver bullet, but it's a really important area that has a lot of support. And let's face it, especially after COVID, a lot of our youth are, in particular, are really lost. They're floundering. They need a sense of purpose. And this is an area that really has a strong sense of purpose and, frankly, is extremely cost-effective. It does not cost the government money for an AmeriCorps volunteer. The government actually earns money by the services that they deliver over the course
0: of their tenure as a contributor. That sounds like a no-brainer, like a win-win-win.
1: Yes, it is a no-brainer, but just because it's a no-brainer in Congress does not mean that it will happen, so, <laughs> so we're going to work it.
0: I guess that's why we're having the whole conversation, and uh, I also want to ask you about what you guys did on AI and cyber, because that's a topic that we cover a lot on this podcast.
1: So I would recommend for anybody that's not aware to take a look at the executive summary of a very important body of work. It's called the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. It was led by Eric Schmidt and Bob work along with a dozen plus other commissioners from across the country. This was congressionally chartered. It occurred over the last three years. The findings of it are summed up in the executive summary. And essentially what it looks at is where our competitiveness is in these emerging technological areas, especially AI, vis-a-vis China and some of the other emerging competitors. The United States is a bastion of innovation, but complacency kills. You can't rest on your victories. And our competitors have made dramatic steps forward. Meanwhile, our polarization has really hindered progress. The lead slide in the commission's report, the first slide of the report, Eric Schmidt says something to the effect of, our political polarization is viewed by China as its greatest strategic asset the stakes are very high here. And so what the commission did was it, it established 50-plus recommendations for Congress and for the executive branch. They're laid out. It's meticulous. It's over two years. Now we need to get the work done to get them passed into law. And they do lots of different things. It's largely about changing the whole of government approach, our training, our investments, how we think about national security threats. The good news is that progress has been made in part, Due to our efforts and others, the first swath of recommendations passed into law last year, almost a dozen of them, and we're, we'll are be deep at work this year on that
0: topic. So first, it sounds like, based on the experts, that our polarization is not just bad for our own democracy, but it's also a major national security threat for the country. Is that a fair statement?
1: I think absolutely. What it does is it blocks anything getting done, even the most sensible of issues, because you just don't end up having a vehicle. Or if it gets done, it gets done with no other party vote. And so once the other party comes into power, it just seesaws back. You know, From a business standpoint, what do businesses really want from government at the end of the day? They want laws that are predictable, and that they can understand. And then they'll go ahead and build businesses and, and grow our economy. Very difficult to have that if you're just seesawing back and forth between one-party votes.
0: So what are some of the actions in that AI cybersecurity bill that we're going to be seeing over the next few years?
1: A lot of the initial steps are in actually bringing in training and education into the government in these spaces. There's also a a very important talent development pipeline, which enables Americans to, to give some of their time to actually be contributing directly to the government if they have expertise in this space. There are a bunch of big ideas on the table. There's, you know, looks at immigration reform, which is a very important topic, looks at establishing an ROTC-like structure for individuals that come in and then will give service in the cyber fields and the AI fields. Lots of different components, but it's essentially about reorienting our government in a way that it actually recognizes, hey, these are the conflicts of the future. You know, there's there's an old saying in the military that you're always fighting the last war. We don't have time for that. (laughs) This is moving exponentially faster than anything we've seen in human history.
0: That is a little scary, but I'm glad you guys are doing some good work on that in conjunction with Congress. What are some of the major initiatives that are most pressing right now for With Honor?
1: Yeah, so we really are in two buckets. We have our policy arm and we have our political arm. On the policy arm, we look specifically into the areas of national security. We talked about AI and cyber. There are about a dozen different laws that we'll look to pass this year. Within national service, we're pushing on an expansion to double the size of JROTC units around the country. JROTC is a fabulous program. It's largely in disenfranchised public schools. Again, it's building some of that civic education and values for our youth. And then we're, we're doing a lot on veterans and military families. I was very pleased that a mental health bill recently passed that representatives Moulton and Miller-Meeks led called the Brandon Act. We're looking heavily into burn pits issue this year. There's a bottomless number of initiatives that need to get done. These are ones that have bipartisan support and can get accomplished this year. The second part of the organization is really on the political side. And we are seeing just a host of very qualified high caliber veteran candidates that are raising their hand to run for office across the US. We'll talk to any veteran. We focus exclusively in house seats for the primary amount of our our support, but we talk and we help counsel any veteran that's looking to run across the country. There are 26 members of the 4-Country Caucus, this Bipartisan Caucus in the house. We're looking to grow that over time to over 40 and so very busy on the recruiting and training side of the organization.
0: Well, one of our podcast guests just announced for Senate, as you probably know, David McCormick.
1: He's running in Pennsylvania, right? And we'll be watching that race. And, and for those who know, he's a he
0: was an ex Army Ranger, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct.
1: We're not in Senate races. We would be conflicted out of that race too, because Connor Lamb is running as a Democrat. And if both of them they get through the primary, then Pennsylvania has the good uh, opportunity of having two principled veterans to choose from between the two. That's really what we're about. As an organization is helping enable principled vets to have a shot and to be able to serve again.
0: And you mentioned that you're working to help the lives of veterans as well. I mean, veterans face a lot of issues today from mental health challenges to food insecurity to even now recruitment by extremists. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that veterans are facing and what we can all do to help?
1: Yeah, I think the most important piece here is that veterans are not looking to be seen as, you know, a charity case. When I think about businesses. Hiring veterans, I think about it as enlightened self-interest. You get a veteran, you may need to train them a little more. They may not have a business background, for example. But once you invest in that training, you're going to invest in extraordinary, loyal, committed individual who's worked on diverse teams and faced hard problems, sometimes the hardest of problems. So I think that's really the starting point. Veterans, like most Americans, are looking for purpose. They're looking for ways to contribute. And they're looking to do that based on their own merits. We look at a lot of different opportunities related to not only veteran employment, but also spouses. You know, just think about the lifestyle of having to move every three years with your family into a new state or into a different country. Oftentimes, the employment laws are such that it's prohibitive to find work as you're making those moves. So we look at reducing those barriers. There's a big emphasis on mental health. This is not just a veteran issue. And I think veterans have been done a disservice by the narrative around PTSD. Most Americans think that most veterans suffer from PTSD. That's not the case. It's a significant number, but it is a minority. And those folks need a healthcare system where they can raise their hand and they can get treatment early on. And that's not stigmatized. And it has been stigmatized. And so I mentioned the Brandon Act earlier. What that does is it reduces the barriers to entry for you to be able to say, Hey, I have a problem. Let me get that treatment. Think about your head, just like you think about your body. Work the preventative maintenance. right? Get the counseling on early before it becomes a bigger problem. So those are a few of the areas. I'm really pleased that the caucus championed the establishment of a global war on terrorism memorial On the National Mall. The National Mall has been closed to new memorials. This might not sound like a big deal for some people when they hear about it, but it's actually very significant, especially given the withdrawal in Afghanistan and how that all occurred and just the last 20 years of those conflicts. There are a lot of vets that are really hurting from that. And it would be a shame if we have to wait until veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan are 80 years old before they can have a space where they and their families can go and pay respects to those that made the ultimate sacrifice and reflect on that and have a sacred space for that type of reflection. That's what ended up happening in the World War II Memorial, which is that amazing memorial. At any rate, that got done this last year. We leaned in heavily with it and we ought to be able to see construction start in the next
0: few years. Well, that's fantastic. That's so, so important because especially in our culture today, memories seem to be getting shorter and shorter. That's right.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And like everything we do, it was bipartisan. The two champions of that, it was initiated by uh, Representative Mike Gallagher, Republican out of Wisconsin, and Seth Moulton, Democrat out of Massachusetts. Seth then passed it over to Representative Jason Crow in Colorado, and Mike Gallagher were able to get this done with the support of the four-country caucus. So you look for who are going to be two champions, Republican, Democrat, get together and then drive something into law and get get it done.
0: That's really amazing, Rye. You've certainly contributed a lot to our country, both on the military side and your work today. I imagine that a lot of our audience doesn't know what your work in Africa from when you were just a college student. Can you talk a bit about how you ended up in Kenya as, a, I think, 19 or 20 year old?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. This was a very formative experience for me. I like to think about my best education was in the Marine Corps. It was complemented by this experience co-founding an NGO in the informal settlement called Kibera in Nairobi, Kenya. My path there was I was in in college in an ROTC program. It was before September 11th. And most of the conflicts that the US military was engaged in were related to peacekeeping missions and ethnic conflict. I knew I was going into the Marine Corps. That was really my first calling. It was the way that I thought that I would primarily make a difference with my life. And so I wanted to understand what those conflicts would be like. And I took some anthropology classes and one of my professors had some ties to Kenya and said, listen, you're asking a bunch of questions and it's important to read books, but you also need to talk to people and get it on the ground perspective. And that individual, a woman named Jennifer Kaufman, introduced me to this informal settlement, which is about the size of Central Park, has hundreds of thousands of people living in it is not uncommon in the world. About a sixth of the world's population lives in just grinding urban poverty in in informal settlements, what the residents refer to as slums. And this particular slum has a history of ethnic strife. And so I took some Swahili classes and then went over to basically understand why this conflict was happening and have a bit of an experience as a 19-year-old. I was not planning to start an organization or co-found an organization. But while I was there, I met these were just remarkable people, including a neighbor of mine who became one of my co-founders. And we built this organization you know, over a 20-year period of time together. That neighbor, Tabitha Festo, was a nurse. And the short story is she took a small grant from me for $26, just $26. She wanted to sell vegetables and start a small business. She had lost her job. I was about to leave. I gave her the $26. Didn't think I'd see her again. She took that money, invested in a small vegetable selling business, accumulated some savings, and then decided to pursue her dream, which was to establish a small medical clinic, which she did. And so I came back the next summer. We were planning to set up a sports program that would be interethnic and help prevent violence by investing in young, talented leaders, give them an opportunity to play soccer together. I had another co-founder from the community who was teamed up with us and led it. And within the first week, we bumped into Tabitha, And Tabitha had taken that $26 and started this small medical clinic out of her 10 by 10 foot check. Over time, it didn't happen overnight, but over time, working together, we grew the healthcare program and the sports program. And the healthcare program now treats over 30,000 patients a year. It has the only maternity center in the community and has been very involved with studying infectious diseases with the CDC and its Kenyan counterpart. It identified one of the first uh, cases of COVID in the continent. And so it's giving back to the community and also creating knowledge that other communities like it can benefit from. The reason why it worked was because I wasn't calling the shots. We were using what was called participatory development, and it was all locally led by Tabitha. By my other co-founder, Salim, at first, and then by this just remarkably talented group of individuals who are hungry to make a difference, but also many of them caught in the traps of absolute abject poverty.
0: Well, that's amazing. Under $30 20 years ago, with a lot of hard work and dedication, turns to 30,000 patients per year in a very large slum. That's an incredible track record. It's awesome
1: to be a part of it. I mean, you know, you just, again, like my father would say, you know, assert yourself in the service of others and you're going to benefit through service as well. you focus less on your problems and more on what can get done and the impact that you can make together. So that's Carolina for Kibera, CFK Africa now. We, we just rebranded up for our 20th anniversary and we're now in six different informal settlements, an amazing team on the ground. I'm involved as a volunteer still on the board.
0: So if someone wants to learn more
1: at cfkafrica.com, CFKAfrica.org. Check it out. We have student volunteers every summer and uh, doing a lot of work in public health and youth leadership development. And if folks
0: want to learn more about With Honor, it's withhonor.org, I believe, right?
1: Yep. That's great.
0: Well, Ryan, I'm guessing you're an optimist given all your work around the world. What gives you hope for the future?
1: Yeah, just on that note, one of my uh, favorite sayings of all time was by the now late Colin Powell. He had this saying that perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. The basic gist of it is stay optimistic because that's what leadership is about. You know, you, you don't want to be naive with it, but you want to be, you know, you want to be forward leaning and forward thinking. And so, and we do have a lot of problems, but we also have a lot of solutions. If you're lucky to be born in this country or lucky to be in this country, it's still the best country you could possibly imagine with the most opportunities and it's easy to start feeling down on yourself. But just think about, uh, you know, think about what uh, what can go right and then, you know, cr- start creating that trajectory.
0: Well, Ra, you've certainly given us a lot to think about, especially in terms of what can go right over the next few years. So thanks for your leadership. Thanks for your service and appreciate having you on the podcast.
1: Thanks Naveen. being great to be here. Thanks to the CSIS uh, family. By the way, we are thrilled that we have a member of our team who's a CSIS alum, our chief operating officer. He also happens to be a Marine, but yeah, thanks for having me on. Great to be here, and look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast,
0: check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts: from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart
1: Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify.